Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Happy New Year to you all. For many people, including me, one of life's greatest joys is a lovely dram of whiskey. Whether you're a fan of Kentucky bourbon, single malt scotches, Japanese or Tennessee whiskey, every glass tells a story or contains memories that connect drinkers to different places and different times. For me, a dram of Cragamore 12 instantly takes me back to Edinburgh, where I've spent many months hunting American revolutionaries in the archives. But like most folks, I know less about the stories behind the whiskeys than I would like. That's where Drew Hanish comes in. On today's show, you'll meet Drew, the host of the podcast Whiskey Lore, a show dedicated to exploring whiskey's history and debunking whiskey's myths one glass at a time. Drew stopped by the Washington Library just before the holidays to do some research for his newest season of Whiskey Lore, which will feature a series of episodes about George Washington and whiskey. Now, as you might know, Mount Vernon reconstructed Washington's grist mill and distillery several years ago, and the team has been distilling whiskey there ever since, something we've covered before in previous episodes. And just a reminder that if you're a Virginia resident, we can now ship our whiskey and brandy directly to your door. So check out the show notes for a link to our shops page. My colleague Jeanette Patrick and I were fortunate to meet with Drew during his visit with all appropriate COVID protocols in place to talk about his own whiskey journey, the stories he's uncovered, and his fascination with Washington's distilling efforts. Be on the lookout for Drew's Washington-centered whiskey lore episodes to drop soon. In the meantime, raise a glass to freedom and let's drink Washington's whiskey with Drew Hanish. The whiskey episodes that have been done on this podcast have been very popular, so hopefully nice. we'll drive some traffic your way. <laughs> you, you you now understand why I do a uh, a whisk, whiskey podcast, uh, because uh, from my travel podcast, the whiskey stuff was the most uh, popular. So Why don't we start there, actually, and tell us about your inspiration for creating Whiskey Lore. You're the, the creator of this podcast that looks at the history of whiskey through certain distilleries, certain brands. Uh, You're at the Washington Library today to actually look at George Washington and whiskey, and we'll come to that story, or we'll come to that part of your interest in Washington's story here in a bit. But I thought we'd first begin by talking about what inspired you to create Whiskey Lore. Well, it was a really interesting journey for me because I, for the last 18 years, have been a web designer, and I got to a point in my life where I started realizing that as I was getting older, I, I I should be looking at my life and saying, what would I be disappointed if I didn't do this with my life? And so it immediately, my mind went to travel. And I said, I, I really love travel. I haven't done it. Uh, I haven't made an effort at trying to extend beyond the United States and taking trips. So I actually planned out from a build I did on my on my office Uh, Just We moved into a new office. I got an American Express card. I had to charge a bunch of stuff on it, and I got enough points that I could take a free flight pretty much anywhere in the world I wanted to go. So I said, well, I'm going to fly to Paris. And so that was my initial idea, but I thought 14 days in Paris. I mean, my travels usually have me going to someplace different every day. So that evolved into a James Bond trip where I went through and I studied every James Bond movie to find out where all the cool places were that he went. 
I mapped them all out across Europe. And then I basically plotted out a trip through the Alps and going to all these different places. I actually ended up spending one day in Paris. People say, one day in Paris, what the heck can you do in Paris in a day? I did a lot, uh, and I did a lot on that entire trip. But that inspired me to actually put together a blog, and I thought people probably would like to learn how I'm doing this James Bond journey and where some of the locations are and, and kind of help people plot out the same thing. And it was after I got back from that trip and I started doing the, the blogging and I was starting to plan out trips to other places as, as well, that a friend of mine said, we should do a whiskey tasting. And I said, well, you know, I don't actually, I can't, since I was a, a much younger, I had had a bad experience with some Jack Daniels. And because of that, I can't even smell whiskey. Just to, to get around it, the gag reflex kicks in. He said, well, we'll get you started on scotch. If you want to come on up and everybody's going to bring three bottles of whiskey and we're going to talk about the different whiskeys and, and compare. So I walked into the liquor store and I looked at the shelves and I had no idea. I mean, I had never looked at whiskey before. And so I really had no idea what three whiskeys that I was going to bring. I was just at the mercy of the labels on the shelf. And I don't like feeling that out of touch with something that I have to try to impress somebody with what choices I, I'm, I'm going to make on, on something like that. So after we did the tasting, I, I thought, well, this is interesting. Everything tastes like whiskey. I, I, I couldn't tell you one flavor from another or what made one better than the other. But I got through the tasting okay. And I thought, you know, I'm trying to find another theme trip that I could do. Why don't I just go to Kentucky? It's about six hours away. And so I'll plan out one of my trips. And just like I did with the James Bond trip, rather than just choosing one, two, three places to go, I decided to go to 19 distilleries in eight days. And just, you know, I wanted to immerse myself in it. But I also found that there was a travel aspect to it. How do you do a Kentucky bourbon trail trip uh, without drinking and driving and, and dealing with how many distilleries can I go to in a day and, and working all of that out? So it was a real learning experience for me. And I ended up bringing a, my phone with me and videoed myself going into and coming out of these distilleries. And I would talk about everything I learned at each of these different distilleries. So it, it just evolved into this great learning experience. And coming out of that, I thought, well, if I've done Kentucky. I need to go do Scotland. So again, I plan out this crazy breakneck trip to Scotland. And what happened was I was flying into Dublin because that was the cheapest place I could get a plane flight into. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be in Dublin and I've got 17 days over here, why don't I just lop off about four days and go see Ireland? So, yeah, who can see Ireland in four days again? Um, I ended up driving out, going to a distillery there. And then uh, Scotland, I went through and did all these different distilleries. And the one thing that I found in going to all these distilleries was that every distillery had something about it, some reason why it was there some inspiration that brought it there, or some great story 
that when you heard that story, you said, man, you know, I'd love to know more about that story or whether it's uh, a lot of people are, are ghost chasers and they'll, they'll chase after these ghost stories here or there. For me, it was well beyond ghost stories. I mean, it's just uh, so many distilleries I went to had fires. And you start wondering, you know, what was the uh, uh, what was the outcome of that? Why were there fires? And you found out that, you know, fires were started more by the mills than they were by the uh, stills. It's like these little things that you would learn along the way. And I, I just felt like I was pulling back layer after layer after layer. But I was also finding a lot of mysteries and a lot of things where distilleries would have conflicting information. Like in Kentucky, you would hear them say, uh, oh, the name bourbon came from New Orleans or the name bourbon came from Kentucky. And it just depended on which distiller you went to as to whether they said it was one or the other, but nobody really seemed to know. And I thought, I need to find these things out. I need to put my researching brain into this and my love of history and see if I can figure all that out. So really whiskey lore evolved from all of these different distilleries that I traveled to and just falling in love with the, the culture around whiskey, these distillers, their history. It was like the perfect blend of um, learning how to taste, learning uh, to get beyond the marketing end of it and digging into the history side of things. Well, it's fascinating. And I want to pick up on a couple of themes you just raised here and actually start with that bad experience with Jack Daniels because you know, often you hear from folks who are really into whiskey or really into wine is that there was a particular moment or a, or a particular bottle, particular whiskey that really started them on this path and that changed everything for them. I would imagine that many people in the audience today, and I should note that our colleague Jeanette Patrick is with us today as well on, on the show. We've all probably had that um, unfortunate experience with one particular grain spirit or the other that inspired such an adverse reaction initially. But as you just laid out, there was a sea change in a very real sense that started you on this journey. And just to drill down a little bit deeper, was there a particular whiskey that was a revelation for you? And that sort of moment, as soon as you tasted it, you understood what kind of journey you were actually on. I think what's interesting for me is that, and I think this is why I'm relatable to a, a lot of people getting into whiskey, is that there really wasn't a particular moment or a particular whiskey. I think a lot of people come in and they feel a little overwhelmed. I'll, I'll relate it to, to wine. Wine really kind of drew my interest because if you meet somebody who's a wine aficionado, they can tell you where it came from and the different tasting notes that they're pulling out of it. They're giving a whole experience around it. And I think that intimidates a lot of people when they first try to get into drinking whiskey. They, they look at it and they say, well, I'm watching these videos. There's a guy named Ralphie who does a ralphie.com who he'll pull out 50 tasting notes out of a glass of whiskey. And I'm like, where are you getting all of that? And so I think that holds a lot of people back or it makes them not want to investigate it because it feels like it's too much of a barrier to get through. And when I talk about my friends and I getting together and we got 12 bottles of whiskey and we're sipping each one and I walk away from it going, they all just taste like whiskey. I can say that one 
had you know was smooth and that one was too hot you know you're using these very basic terms to try to relate what this is and you could put three of them together and me taste all three and again my impressions would be very general on them i think it's kind of like peeling back layers of an onion you 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 have to keep going deeper and deeper in to it and that it takes time it's not something that you're just going to learn over time and even now after you know two plus years of a lot of whiskey tasting it's still a challenge to have these different glasses of of whiskey here uh, and then trying to figure out what the differences are between each. Uh, so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a learning experience for some people. Some people just pick it up naturally. And I think those people are people who have experience in tasting foods and smelling foods. I grew up in a family where we ate Pennsylvania Dutch cooking and everything was bland. You didn't really salt anything. You didn't have spices in anything. And I remember when I moved out of the house, the first thing I got hooked on was Cajun food because it was like, I'm just going to shock my taste buds and go for something different. But you tend to get into this habit of eating just to eat. And I need something in my belly. Now I'm on to something else. And what's interesting is that, that whiskey and developing and, and learning more about it has gotten me to a point now where I pay attention to food. And I actually smell and try to pick things out of food and then try to relate them back to the, the whiskey that I'm drinking. So for me, it wasn't really just a particular moment. I have had some aha moments with whiskey. A good example would be Laphroaig. Laphroaig comes from an island called Isla, which is right off of the Scottish coast. And they have a lot of iodine in the water. Uh, there's a medicinal quality to their whiskeys. And the first time I smelled this particular Isla, cheap Isla whiskey, I said, it's Band-Aids in an ashtray. I mean, it's just that that's what it was. It was all ashy smoke and this kind of uh, medicinal kind of smell. And so that was an eye opener for me. But what I did was I took it on as a challenge to figure out why, why don't I like this? And what am I missing? Why do other people like it and I don't? Uh, and I, I, that's when I made the correlation between smoky whiskeys being savory. And, um, and so whenever I meet somebody who's like, I don't like scotch because it's smoky. Uh, and I go, not all scotch is the same. But if you go to the Isla scotches, and they, they are smoky, but just change your frame of reference and think of it as this is a savory scotch versus being a sweet scotch because we always if you try to put it on a sweet scale all the time and it isn't that way when you taste it it can be disappointing in the end now isla whiskey is my favorite whiskey but i had to learn how to love it it wasn't something that came to me naturally well, I think that's that's a really astute observation because, yeah, if you are unindoctrinated, having an Isla Scotch, it would really yeah. punch you in the face. <laughs> Absolutely. We could spend all day talking about the variations amongst Scotch in particular. I mean, I certainly thinking about the PD Isla Scotches, and then you go up north into the Highlands, and you've got some more of the sweetness and the vanilla and caramel, and then, you know, off to the east and space side and you've got that hint of sea salt which is so very delicious but i can speak for jeanette because we're both midwesterners we totally understand bland food yeah yeah 
Well, I'm from Michigan, so there you go. As the name of your podcast suggests, you are after the lore behind whiskeys. Can you tell us a little bit about the conceit of the show and what you set out to accomplish each week? One of my surprises in starting to do research on whiskey is how much marketing has thrown our knowledge of whiskey off. There are a lot of tales being told that tend to uh, portray things one way, and then as you start digging in, you start to realize that things aren't that way. Or you'll, you'll hit a situation, I did some research on uh, this famous quote by Abraham Lincoln, where he, when asked about his idea of putting Ulysses S. Grant in charge of the entire army, he was told, well, I don't think this is a great idea because Grant is a drunk and, uh, and you don't want to put a drunk in charge of your entire army. And then Lincoln's retort was, well, you know, find out what the man drinks and I'll send a barrel to all my other generals because his feeling was that uh, General Grant was the best fighter he had in the entire army. And what's funny about it is, is that as I started researching that, because I started researching it because I love the Old Crow connection. Old Crow whiskey is like a passion project for me. It's owned by Jim Beam right now, and they're really not doing anything with it. It's basically a younger version of Jim Beam's white label whiskey. But in the 19th century, it was the most famous whiskey in the United States. And it had a stellar reputation. And so I, I have this thing where I'm trying to figure out how to get that across to my audience. And so I wanted to take this story and show that Ulysses S. Grant was a big fan of Old Crow because that's what everybody, everything I was reading was, was pointing to. And as I dug into it, I started finding out that nobody knows what Ulysses S. Grant was drinking. In the uh, 1870s and before, they weren't bottling whiskey. It was all coming to you in a barrel. Um, and the quality of what was coming to you in that barrel could be just about anything. It wasn't really brand recognition. We've gotten so used to brand recognition these days. It is likely that he drank Old Crow because Old Crow was everywhere at that point. But to say he was an Old Crow fan is stretching it quite a bit. But there are even historians that, that will suggest that. So as you're digging into it, all of a sudden I'm finding out that actually Lincoln never even said that. It was something that had been picked up by the New York Herald. The New York Herald had written some a satirical quote from him. And then the New York Times picked it up, changed the quote a little bit, and then all these other newspapers took it and, and ran with it. And I found a book by a telegraph operator who had actually gone and talked to Lincoln about it and asked him if he'd actually said the quote. And he said, no, it's actually kind of a paraphrased quote from General Wolfe and I think it's King George II at the time. Uh, it was a very similar kind of comment about the madness of James Wolfe and... Um, and the king saying, well, if uh, he's mad, find me the dog and I'll have him bite my other generals. And so Lincoln said, 
I always loved that story. And he said, they probably attributed this quote to me just to give it credence. But other than that, he said, no, I never, never really said it. So, so for me, as I dig in, and I, my goal is to tell stories about whiskey, but also to get people more knowledgeable about what the real truth is. You know, I drove down to New Orleans. I talked to someone there about bourbon. I said, is it even possible that the name bourbon came from here because there is Bourbon Street? And the theory is that, well, because there's a Bourbon Street, you know, and they were shipping all this whiskey down through the Mississippi River, that on their way back up, people were saying, where was, you know, what was that whiskey, that Bourbon Street whiskey? Uh, and that was the idea behind it. Come to find out when I did the research, they couldn't ship any barrels of whiskey down to New Orleans because the Spanish controlled the Mississippi River. And so there was no American commerce going on. There weren't flat boats going until after Thomas Jefferson had the Louisiana Purchase. And so that story really started falling apart. And then it completely fell apart once I found out that Bourbon Street actually didn't become a thing until the 1940s. Before 1940, Bourbon Street was more of a residential area. So people weren't going to bars in the 1820s on Bourbon Street when the name Bourbon started to become popular. So there's almost no way, I mean, there's about a microscopic chance, but highly doubtful unless there was a resident of Bourbon Street in 1820 who was just handing out <laughs> bourbon whiskey to people. Those are the kind of things that I, I want to get people to stop perpetuating the myths. Some of them are fun and I don't want to kill them off, but I want people to know that they are not necessarily true. Uh, I think that's incredibly interesting and something that hopefully our listeners um, will enjoy and want to go and explore. So I guess for them, could you explain the format style of your podcast? Are you looking at, are you doing tastings on every episode? Or are you exploring these myths? Or, you know, can you help us understand what we're going to find? So it's interesting. I actually started it off as just a storytelling podcast. Sort of a Ken Burns kind of an experience. I'm taking a story, doing the research on it, and then sometimes you'll hear some voices pop in, other voices will pop into the episode with supporting information. But I'm taking you on a journey. For instance, uh, I did an episode around uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton and this bottle of 100-year-old whiskey that had been found under the ice in, at his fort in Antarctica. I went and talked to the master distiller who was contacted at this point 100 years later saying, we have your bottle of whiskey and do you want to do something with it? And he said, sure, I'll come down. So he flies down to New Zealand, gets the bottle of whiskey. They tell him he has to handcuff it to himself to bring it back. Um, he brings it back. They do analysis on it. And then he does a tasting chemical analysis and figures out what this whiskey is so that he can recreate it before they have to send all the bottles back to New Zealand to be put back into Antarctica, back into the ice, because they're not, by law, allowed to remove anything from Antarctica. That they got it that far was actually, that's why he had to wear the handcuffs, 
was to keep it under his control. So it ended up being two episodes, really, because the first half of the story was his journey in getting the bottles. But I also needed to tell the Sir Ernest Shackleton story because a lot of Americans don't know that particular story. Uh, but if you're in England, everybody knows that story. It's a, it's a huge story, and it was a great survival story uh, where they spent 400 and 490 days, I think, out in, on the ice basically with no food and how do you survive you know out here in the wilderness kind of thing and not even the wilderness they're just standing on the sometimes they were just standing on ice flows it's an incredible story of survival and so i had that episode i really needed to create a full production out of that to, to be able to tell that story so you'll hear sir Ernest shackleton's life from beginning to end plus this other story wrapped in the middle now, for the longest time, I've been just recording my interviews with people like Richard Patterson, who was that master distiller, and just holding on to them and using little clips. But what, what's happened is now I've evolved to where I do seasons, where I'll do 10 episodes that are stories. And then after that, I'll take the interviews and I'll make the interviews available as well. And so it depends on who I'm talking to as to whether we do a tasting or we don't do a tasting. Um, the tastings aren't really the focus so much of the show. And the reason for that for me is that there are a lot of people doing that. Uh, but it also comes down to a philosophy thing where my belief is that everybody has a different palate. Everybody has different tasting experiences. And to rate something and say, ooh, this is really good because of this, or this is really good because of this, I can look at three different reviewers and they will have completely different opinions on what they're tasting in a whiskey. And that's because you know the flavors, you know the smells that you come to the table with. And if we've grown up with bland food, we've probably got more of a challenge in trying to find that. But we're always going to relate to foods that we know. And so for you to walk into a store and look at a shelf and see all these different tasting notes on it, it may sound wonderful, but you may not taste any of that stuff when you go into a whiskey. Um, and so for me, it's more about you getting to know why they made the whiskey, the, the history behind the whiskey, and growing more of a passion and interest in the distiller and the product than telling you that this whiskey is a good whiskey or... Because... The worst whiskey in the world, somebody likes. Okay, There's, you know, it depends. Everybody's got a different use for whiskey. Some people want to drink it to get inebriated. Some people want to drink it to find those tasting notes. For me, it's hard to put a whiskey down or give it a rating because to me, it's all subjective. Well, I have to ask, Richard Patterson is quite a character. And so I just want to know a little bit more about what it was like to meet him. And then by way of doing so, what kind of questions do you put to master distillers? Richard Patterson is one of my favorite human beings on the face of the planet, because this guy has been a master blender for 50 years for one company. He has an amazing personality. He, if you want to say Scotch whiskey ambassador, they put that in the dictionary. His picture is going to be sitting there right next to it because he's funny. He's entertaining. He's got so much knowledge. He's got such skill. He's known as the nose in putting that into glasses. And so 
that skill that he has is amazing. And then the stories that he tells on top of that, when we sat down to talk, I went to Glasgow, walked into their offices. I got to tell you, he comes out in his suit. He dresses to the nines every day. And you walk in and the first thing you're going to feel is a bit of intimidation. I didn't have any of that. From the moment he he came up to me and we started talking, he's just the nicest person to talk to. And then we started talking about history and he absolutely loves history. And so we just hit it right off. And we talked for a good five hours. We recorded 40 minutes, but we talked for a good five hours. That was incredible. And then we talked about the history of Dalmore, which is one of the whiskeys that he oversees. And the conversation just flows to wherever the moment takes you, really, when you're talking to somebody like that. For talking to a, um, for any master distiller, um, history is a big part of it. Process is also a big part of it. You know, what, what type of grains they're choosing. And uh, in, in the U.S., it's more about the balance of how much corn to rye to wheat. So you come up with a mash bill versus if you're in Scotland, then you're dealing with either blended whiskeys or with a single malt whiskey. Well, there's no grain choice, really. So now we're up to what we're going to do with yeasts and how you choose which yeasts you're going to use, how you do aging there. Aging is really an art in Scotland, but you're finding now with the United States, with distilleries coming up all outside of Kentucky and Tennessee, that other regions are also having to deal with their own issues. When I went out to Denison, Texas, which is in North Texas, I went to a place called Iron Root, and I was there to find out a story about the phylloxera epidemic, which wiped out the French wine industry in the 19th century. The story behind that is that the man, a man that came from there, T.B. Munson, actually had found a rootstock, an American rootstock that helped save the French wine industry. And Iron Root was his nickname. And so that's where this distillery got its name from. But as I sat down with Robert Lickers, who's one of the two brothers at Iron Root, we just got into this really deep philosophical conversation about how you age whiskey and how you deal with the heat of Texas. You know, Scotland has very temperate uh, climate, so there's not a lot of variation, and that's why a whiskey needs to age for 12 to 15 years over there because it isn't seeping in and out of the, the wood. There's less interaction with the wood in Scotland, whereas in Texas, you've got extreme heat and there's a lot more evaporation, things like that that you have to deal with. And so we spent all the time just talking about dealing with barrels and how do you choose the right barrels to make this work and be able to age it a little bit longer. Because you'll find a lot of Texas whiskeys are a year old or two years old. They won't go much beyond two years old because it's just too hot to be able to age them for any long period of time. It seems that every distiller has their own interest, what drives them. And again, you pick that up when you go on these distillery tours. You'll start to catch little uh, hints as to what makes this distillery different from others in terms of how they do their, their processes.
Well, I'm glad that you'll have a chance to talk to our own uh, Steve Bayshore tomorrow, actually, and learn what makes the Washington distillery tick. And before we get to your journey here to Virginia, do you have a favorite episode that you produced so far on your show that at the end of the day, you think, yeah, that was a good one? <sighs> wow, that's tough. That's tough. Because, um, because every one of them, I think, in some way has instructed me. Uh, I, I think anytime I can release an episode, and I feel that somebody can listen to it and get something out of it that may be about whiskey and maybe about something a little bit deeper. Th those are the really special episodes. So, you know, the Shackleton episode was great for teaching people about Shackleton's journey and all that he went through. The whiskey was kind of a, a side piece of it once I really started digging into it. The one I did recently on Uncle Nearest, the story of Uncle Nearest, I think is one of my favorites because the further I dug into it, the more I started seeing that it, this story really related to a lot that was going on currently in, in the world in terms of, of race relations. And the story with Uncle Nearest was that there's a woman that's traveling to Singapore with her husband. She picks up a New York Times article she sees that there's this story about Jack Daniels had basically potentially used a slave to get the recipe to make their whiskey. And so their whole whiskey brand is, was based off of this narrative that Jack Daniel had learned this from a preacher named Dan Call, when in reality he had learned it from a slave named Nearest Green. And what was interesting was that the woman who read this was an author of books on love and relationships. And, but she said, I just felt compelled that I needed to go dig after the story because the story came along with a picture that showed Jack Daniel in a 1900-whatever era picture uh, with a black man sitting right next to him surrounded by other white workers. And she said, the story doesn't sound quite right because why is he sitting so prominently in this picture? And so I ended up doing an interview with Nelson Eddy, who's the chief historian for Jack Daniel. And I did an interview with Vaughn Weaver, uh, who's with Uncle Nearest. She started a whole distillery based on the Uncle Nearest story. And what she ended up finding out was that Jack, Jack Daniel and Uncle Nearest were really great friends and that Uncle Nearest started that distiller or started off in teaching Jack as a little young boy how to make whiskey. And then when he was set free, he was hired by Jack Daniel as his first master distiller. And then when Uncle Nearest retired, then Jack Daniel took over as the master distiller. But he initially started off with Uncle Nearest as, as his master distiller. And what was really great in doing the research was finding out how well the Green family actually did. They still actually work for Jack Daniel. There's a descendant of Uncle Nearest still working for Jack Daniel, as well as a descendant now working for Uncle Nearest. And that the family did really well during that time period in rural Tennessee, where you wouldn't have thought this kind of a story would happen. And so it was, it was great to see that and then also learn that now Jack Daniel and Uncle Nearest 
are working together to help get more diversity into the whiskey industry, putting tons of money behind that. So that was that was a lot of fun because I thought it was a story that was important during a time when there's a lot of strife. There was a lot of looking at things from a negative standpoint, and there weren't a lot of positive stories coming out from that angle. It's a recent story. It's one of my most recent stories, but it, it does hit me in a in a very positive way, which which is part of what I want to get out of this. I, I don't, I'm not looking for negative stories. I'm not looking to tear anybody down. I want stories that help advance our knowledge about whiskey and history as well. So tell us then about your interest in George Washington and whiskey. I've always been intrigued by George Washington, his personality, his interest in virtue, and always portraying that as, as much as he can. And then we bump into the story about the Whiskey Rebellion and trying to figure out between what we've sort of heard about it and what I hear about it in the whiskey industry and what is the truth behind all of this. I will say that I've held off on doing a story about the Whiskey Rebellion for a long time because a lot of it seems a little fuzzy to me. And so uh, I knew that it was going to be something that I really was going to need to dig a little deeper into. But the other part that fascinates me about uh, Washington and whiskey is that he started a distillery. And just three years after, he'd gone through this with the Whiskey Rebellion, which if the Whiskey Rebellion had gone sour then I don't think we probably would have seen George Washington opening up a distillery. He probably would have been very uninterested in, in whiskey at that time. But he's a character that we all know. Uh, and so knowing that he has ties to whiskey, it's, it feels like a story that needs to be investigated. So what story do you hope to tell? You've done some initial research, and we're going to talk uh, off camera here after we're done about uh, the Whiskey Rebellion a little bit. And and uh, some resources that you might be able to uh, access to flesh out that story. But, but what is it that you hope to find and what light do you hope to shed on this particular story? Because Washington, as you rightly say, starts this thing uh, just after, shortly thereafter, the Whiskey Rebellion. But then he makes the grand exit and dies in 1799 after it's only been in operation, at least under his management for a few years. What intrigues you there? Well, I think what's interesting is that uh, is the story of James Anderson and and trying to figure out how James Anderson talked him into going into the business, trying to understand uh, the one overriding thing I think throughout the Whiskey Rebellion into this is is trying to figure out George Washington's management style and what brings him to this. Um, how, how he works with James Anderson or doesn't work with James Anderson to pull all of this off and where the success came from. You know, was it all in, we, we talk about George Washington's distillery, but in reality, it sounds more like it was James Anderson's distillery that, that George Washington kind of gave him the, the keys and said, go with. But is that the story? That's the, the kind of thing I want to dig into um, with that to learn a little bit more because I know being a fan of George Washington I know the common theme even back to when he shows up at the Second Continental Congress with in full dress uniform 
even at that time, he was still saying, I want to get back to Mount Vernon. I want to get back to Mount Vernon. And he only ended up having a three-year run at being back at Mount Vernon. And he spent some of that time having a distillery built on his premises. To me, I think there's there's a story there, and that's that's what I want to dig a little bit more into and, and give people more of an accurate picture of George Washington distiller and George Washington and you know how he ended up managing the crisis with the Whiskey Rebellion. Besides uh, these couple of episodes on Washington and whiskey, what else is coming down the pike for your listeners? Well, it's interesting because we're uh, one of the things that I just discovered on, on James Anderson was that he was a grain supplier to Lowland Distilleries. And I'm actually going to be doing an episode around low, Scotch Lowland Distilleries. They kind of disappeared for a while. It went down to where there were just three Lowland Distilleries. And so now we all talk about Highland, Speyside, Isla. They get all the um, attention in the Scotch whiskey world. And, and Lowland whiskey was used for blends for a long time because that's what was popular at the time was, was blends all the way up until probably about 25, 30 years ago when single malt really started to take off again. So I want to dig into that a little bit. Uh, and um, I'm working on two episodes about Virginia City, Nevada, which has been interesting in partnership with another podcaster who does Old West podcasts. So that's been a really interesting journey because I do have a fascination with whiskey in the Old West and trying to, again, see, is it just the guy comes into the dusty bar, you know, throws a coin down and here comes a bottle and a shot glass and he's just knocking it back. Is that, is that real? Was that how it was all done back then? So that, that, that's, uh, that's a fun one for me. And I'm um, going to dig into moonshine this season also, because I grew up uh, mostly in, in Western North Carolina and we heard lots of tales about moonshine in Western North Carolina. I actually have a distillery that I'm working with in doing that episode and they actually have 11 generations of distillers in their family and a lot of them go through moonshine they go back to ireland but they were in moonshine for many many years and i will say that it's probably not one of my more peaceful episodes because there were some uprisings there in the moonshine world and so i'll be covering some of that as well. And really looking, I try to do about 50% um, US, 50% Scotch slash Irish in my stories because I'm here to promote more about whiskey in general rather than to try to be a bourbon guy or be a Scotch guy. I think that both sides actually look at each other with a curious eye, but also a lot of mystery. And so I want to break those walls down and have people be able to enjoy all whiskey. There's some great whiskeys coming from all sorts of different places. I think that's certainly a noble goal, uh, but just take it easy on the moonshine, because as you rightly point out, that, <laughs> that does lead to problems from time to time. It can. It can. Yes. <laughs> well, Drew, thank you very much for taking the time today. We really appreciate it. Uh, we're looking forward to the episodes and uh, someday I hope we can get a wee dram. Yes, absolutely. Same here. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's media department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.